Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Truth and Movies. Today, Denzel Washington is the sequelizer in action thriller follow-up, The Equalizer 2. This is the point where usually I'd uh, give you a chance to do the right thing, but not tonight. Mark Cousins searches for meaning in the sketches and paintings of a legendary filmmaker in the eyes of Orson Welles. You drew everywhere you went, so there are at least a thousand of your artworks. Where are they now? And for Film Club, Orson himself weaves a tricksy web of fact and fiction in the art hoax film essay, F for Fake. The triumphs and the frauds, the treasures and the fakes, a fact of life. All coming up in Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Okay, this is a promise. For the next 45 minutes or so, everything you hear from us is truth and movies. It's Michael Leader here, sitting across from Adam Woodward Hello. of Little White Lies. And a newcomer this week, Darren Richman. Welcome, Darren. Hi. Uh, could you introduce yourselves to the listeners? Yeah, I'm a freelance journalist. I write a weekly column for The Independent in which I champion obscure or forgotten films, not entirely dissimilar to Film Club. And uh, yeah, looking forward to getting into this. Well, without further ado, should we delve into Denzel's latest? First up, it's The Equaliser 2. So in The Equaliser 2, Denzel Washington returns for his very first sequel, reprising the role of the mysterious and deadly vigilante Robert McCall. McCall is brought out of hiding and sent on a path of revenge when a close friend is killed. But when we first meet him, he's working as a lift cab driver, dealing out justice with every journey. Here's a clip. How you doing? I'm the uh, Lyft driver that you called to take home your girlfriend. Not a girlfriend, man. Oh, credit card was invalid. Come in. There you go. Mm. Pay yourself whatever and uh, give yourself a nice tip. Thank you. You're not going to ask me if you got home okay? <laughs> this is the point where usually I'd uh, give you a chance to do the right thing, but not tonight. Tonight I'm going to need your cameras, cell phones. Anything you might have used to record what you did to her. You knocked on the wrong door tonight, Pops. Dan Zeller, dealing out justice as only he can. So, Darren, this is Equalizer 2, following on from the first film of a couple of years ago. Uh, were you excited about the prospect of yet more equalizing action? 
Um, well, I hadn't actually seen the first film when I saw the second film. Uh-huh. And I managed to make a mistake in the email I received and I thought I was going to see the Orson Welles documentary. <laughs> so as I stood outside sort of Leicester Square View and there were 200 people in this queue, I thought, wow, you know, Welles <laughs> is a bigger draw than I thought. So once I realised what film I was going to see, I don't see a massive amount of action films. Obviously, mm-hmm. I've seen most of the classics. So I didn't really have a huge opinion of what I was about to see. And when it started, I found it thoroughly enjoyable, I must admit. You know, a lot's been made of the fact that it's the first sequel that mm-hmm. Denzel Washington has actually made. But I think it's slightly kind of a disingenuous thing that people are bringing up because a lot of great films don't get sequels. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. he's unlikely to make sequels to his very best work and action films are more likely to get sequels. And I don't know how I would have felt if I'd seen the first one in advance, but I thought this did what it did very well, actually. Yeah, it's very unlikely for him to make Malcolm XXL, <laughs> which is a joke I can't lay claim to. I saw that on Twitter. Um, Adam, were you excited for this one? I was a little bit. I quite like his partnership with director Antoine Fuqua. Mm-hmm. They last worked together on The Magnificent seven a couple of years ago which I don't think did gangbusters but was pretty solid and as you say it's the first sequel by Denzel and Mm -hmm. I I suspect that was by design more than anything else in terms of the fact he's not done more Mm -hmm. he's obviously made a lot of remakes Magnificent Seven being chief among them Mm -hmm. Um, yeah I just would think it was a good opportunity for him to get back in the saddle with, with Fuqua and they work well together yeah, I think Fuqua gets the best out of Denzel in these kinds of roles. In these kinds of roles in particular. And you can tell that Denzel is invested in this role. I think that's what I took from that first film. Even though it's quite a, you know, it's quite a violent, visceral uh, action thriller in that mould of great actor doing the sort of B-movie genre that we have with Taken and The Gunman and Criminal for Kevin Costner and so on. But because Denzel has such an, uh, an aura of quiet menace to him mm. that he brings to this character, but also these fine details. He's a sort of OCD yeah. contract killer. You can see within his mind, it's almost as if, what if Sherlock Holmes had appeared in the Special Forces and now takes it out on bros who date rape women, etc. Yeah, yeah. I feel like they rein that in a little bit in this mm-hmm. film. In the first one, there was a lot of that weird sort of camera flipping inside of his head mm-hmm. and you get this odd perspective where everything slows down and it becomes quite gratuitous and becomes all, almost like quite a lazy mm-hmm. setup for the action that you're about to see. But in this one, I think they do show that a few times, but mostly you just see the action shot in a, in a quite competent way mm-hmm. from you know the perspective inside the room. Yeah, him. it felt like they had decided from the off, you know, this is a guy who has two things. Mm-hmm. He's sort of an ultimate badass and he also reads books. <laughs> yeah. So we sort of open straight away, he's reading between the world and me in the opening Mm -hmm, scene mm -hmm. which is a kind of a recurring theme throughout the book and he gives it to this kid who he has his subplot with a sort of struggling kid who lives near him and I think that actually was where you saw him do his thing really well. There's a sequence where that kid is almost sort of roped into the underbelly of a world that Denzel doesn't want him to be in. And there is a scene just after when Denzel sort of retrieves him from this situation where you know, it is proper Denzel Washington. You are seeing him do his thing. He's absolutely committed to it. You know, this could be him doing fences or something. Mm-hmm. And I, I really like that aspect of it. There was no sort of wink to camera. It mm. wasn't Jason Statham in the Meg, I didn't think. Exactly. And there is this sense that he is delivering a message as part of this performance. The fact that, yeah, you, you mentioned he has this Ta-Nehisi Coates book that is very prominently shown in shorts in case, you know, it's very rare for a film like this to come with a reading list. <laughs> isn't, he, isn't he reading Proust at some 
he is. He is, yeah, because he's end. going through the top list of 100 films to see before you die. Yeah. There's, books, yeah. there's a whole tortured um, kind of opening sequence where he saves a girl, and it turns out he's saving the girl of the owner of the, his local bookshop because he wants to make sure the bookshop stays in business <laughs> yeah. so he can keep buying his books every week. Um, but then also, you have these little moments. It's, it's this subplot with uh, the kid, Miles, who's played by Ashton Sanders, who was the middle kid in Moonlight. And he takes him under his wing, and there's some good home cooking. He asks him to paint his house, and he's going to pay him in sort of book recommendations and things like that. You really get the sense that there's some sort of social message or cultural message woven into this film, and that's why I think an actor of Denzel's stature is willing to be in a film like this. Yeah, I mean, there was also one moment I thought, is this the most unorthodox Holocaust film I've ever seen? Because he befriends his Holocaust survivor. And, you know, we get clips of Denzel trying to learn Yiddish, you know, the guy's teaching him a bit of Yiddish, and that pays off quite nicely. You know, there are things in this film that I wouldn't expect to see in a kind of generic action film. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it is a generic action film. I actually think it is a bit better than that. That was a bit of an unnecessary subplot for me, I think, that the Holocaust survivor. I mean, when they tie it up quite neatly at the end, they do so in a way which is quite surprising Mm -hmm. because what you think is going to happen, what they've set up, they then sort of go one further than that and yeah it was, it was quite schmaltzy and a, a nice moment I suppose but just felt like I didn't necessarily need it. I agree with you but I do think those subplots have a little bit more sense of character and reason to exist than the actual A plot which comes across a bit more like a standard yeah. you thought you were out we're going to pull you back in It is a boilerplate revenge narrative yeah. With and... a pretty bad villain we can't really say who it is because it's a twist but a pretty much a, a sort of charisma void and mm. after some very you know, impactful action sequences where he's breaking fingers and arms left, right and centre and snapping necks. The final action sequence in this is a bit of a letdown, I'd mm. say. Definitely. I mean, I think the film is unquestionably about half an hour too long. Mm. And that final sequence that you're talking about, it just sort of drags on and on. I, I think it's a brilliant opening, this film, because we get him before he's been brought back into the world of the job that presumably he was doing in the first film. And he's, you know, just helping the exploited and oppressed Mm. and then he gets brought back in I think it's really exciting for a time and then it just drags on that little bit too long Mm -hmm. what do you think Adam about this spate of films where actors are cashing paychecks in slightly schlocky B-movies. Do you think that's a good avenue for them, an alternative to going Marvel or whatever? Yeah, it doesn't bother me too much. I guess Denzel's probably at the age where he missed the Marvel boat a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I think he's he's someone who consistently does good work, whether he's directing his own stuff in in something like Fences, as we've mentioned, or doing something like Roman Israel Esquire. I was watching this film thinking, God, Denzel is one of the probably longest serving and best action stars in Hollywood. I mean, this summer we've been all fawning over Tom Cruise's latest exploits in Mission Impossible, and, and rightly so, but... I think for for my money, Denzel's right up there. I mean, he's actually eight years older than Cruz and he's mm. he's still kind of putting in a shift regularly and, and doing, you know, very, very good work in yeah. these kinds of films. He isn't jumping off helicopters. He's not chucking himself out of planes no. or, or speeding over the tops of London buildings. But, but, but it's much more an internalised, quiet sort of perfor- action performance. But he does really, get quite physical in this. It's quite yeah. a muscular performance in yeah. a lot of ways, so... It's, it's interesting. And Darren, you're, a fan of the, you're not an action movie fan, but is it the sort of dramatic a- aspect that will bring you in for these films, maybe? Uh, well, I wouldn't say I'm not an action movie fan, but I feel as though I need action movies vetted for me to the point that someone says, this is a masterpiece, anyone would enjoy this. You know, Speed, The Rock, Con Air, that kind of thing. I was struck by how well it did what it wanted to do. You know, all I can hope for a film is that it sets out to do something and then does that well. And I mm. thought this film did do that. I thought it had slight 
like delusions of grandeur with you know between the world and me and mm. Proust and stuff that did kind of stick out to me but I thought for a film that I was expecting the lead character to be called something like Derek Equalizer <laughs> or that he'd be saying you just got equalized it was a damn sight better than I expected it to be yeah I had the um the Britney Spears song in my head, Womanizer, all the, through the film. <laughs> what a tune. Every time he comes on, on in the scene, I think, oh, he's an equaliser, baby. Uh, <laughs> it, is, it is a crying shame they didn't just call it the sequelizer. It, yeah, but I think that speaks to how seriously they're taking this film. Antoine Fuqua is very much, I mean, That's he's a true. muscular filmmaker and a muscular man as well, isn't he? So I think this is a film, they're not winking like Jason Statham. No, but there is, a, there is an element of self-awareness. We mentioned the, the book, the reading list in there. Mm. I mean, I'm sure that couldn't have been played without some sense of irony or just a bit of an in-joke perhaps amongst Fuqua and Denzel. I mean, mm-hmm. there's, there's clearly more going on there mm-hmm. um, that you can kind of into, but. It's nice to see a uh, you know, supporting cast in here. Bill Pullman in particular, a guy who was a fixture of the films I saw growing up, Independence Day and uh, Casper, etc. And now he just turns up as a sort of sad husband of Melissa Leo, who's uh, Denzel Washington's ex-superior mm-hmm. in the forces. And Bill Pullman's just this, uh, I guess he's a political historian with a beard. He doesn't have a beard in this one, does he? He's, he's shaved his beard. He's got a bit of a beard. There's a, long, a running joke that he's just um, written a very boring history book. Yeah. And that no one wants to read, and you think, oh, poor, this poor guy. Not even what Dan, you know, exactly. not even McCall, who Avid reads every reader. book. Yeah, he can't even make it through that book. But we made it through this film. Uh, should we put some scores on this? So, Darren, uh, so you know, this is in anticipation, enjoyment, and in retrospect, three scores out of five. So, once I realised I was seeing the Equaliser, I would say my anticipation was a two. I think enjoyment in the moment was four. And then afterwards it was a three. But Mm. I think that was about as good as it could ever be for a film like this Mm. for me. Adam? Yeah, based on the first film, I think a two for anticipation. I think it's an improvement on that film, so a three um, at the time and probably a three in retrospect as well. Yeah, I'd, I'd say three, three, two. I enjoyed the last film to an extent. I think that this builds on that, but I'm not going to rewatch it or particularly rush back for the next one. So that was The Equalizer 2. Uh, up next, we're going off into the world of Mark Cousins for The Eyes of Orson Welles. So in The Eyes of Orson Welles, critic, documentary filmmaker and cinematic space cadet Mark Cousins dives into the collections of paintings, sketches and various artworks created by the great director and actor, searching for ways in which the works might reveal new meanings in Orson Welles' films. The film is delivered as a series of letters to Wells, written and narrated by Cousins in his inimitable manner. So your drawing and painting life had begun. It continued for 60 years. You drew everywhere you went. So there are at least a thousand of your artworks. Where are they now? Many are in Michigan, in Ann Arbor, which was named after its trees. Here, in the University of Michigan's archive, they have your relics. So that was a clip from The Eyes of Orson Welles. Adam, should we set up who Mark Cousins is first, for those who may not not know who he is? Yeah, I mean, as you say, he is a former critic... Mm-hmm. Um, turned documentary filmmaker. He pops up every every few years or so with one of his very personal, very intimate looks at something. It's usually like a not so much a, an explanation of a genre, mm-hmm. but more of a kind of personal mode of filmmaking mm. collected through like the last one he did, I think, was uh, a story of children in film. And yeah. he's probably most famous for um, the story of film, which is like 15 hour 
Channel 4 series. Yeah, Channel yeah. 4 series. Epic and very, very good, actually. And this one, yeah, feels like a more of a personal love letter to Orson Welles. He's, he's such a rare bird, yeah. really, in, in filmmaking and criticism. He, I, I described him just in that blurb as a space cadet. He really does just throw himself into the work. Close examination makes these leaps of critical imagination, makes these connections between disparate imagery. You mentioned the story of children in film. That film uses home video footage of his kids when no one else was in the room as this jumping off point for a feature length exploration mm. of childhood in cinema. And this one, he uses this cache of sketches and artwork by Orson Welles yeah. and tries to make connections between a doodle and Citizen Kane. Yeah, and he very much puts himself at the centre of his own work. Mm. And sometimes that can be a bit frustrating, I think. It's often bordering on the too personal at times. Mm -hmm. um, and this film opens with, I think, what is quite a cringeworthy uh, <laughs> monologue about... It's in New York and Cousins is, is voiceover is discussing things like just the state of the modern world basically and he's he's sort of pontificating on what Orson Welles might do with the internet and it's a little bit <laughs> oh, but even references 9-11 within the yeah, first five seconds and, and it, it's a little bit on the nose I think it sets the documentary off on the wrong foot slightly because what actually follows is not it's a bit more discerning and serious in terms of the analysis that he's that he's bringing to it and it's quite light in places as well mm -hmm. Darren what did you make of that that approach to this documentary well I, I thought that you know you, you've just described it as a love letter and that's exactly what it is he mm -hmm. does it as an actual love letter to the person who's clearly his hero and he tells us very early on that he saw Touch of Evil when he was 12 or something mm -hmm. and didn't really understand what was going on but was kind of in love with this large figure at the centre of it but that opening really really, really set me off on the wrong foot. I haven't seen a great deal of Cousins' work before this. I've seen some of it. I think the film's greatest strength is that it contains maybe the two greatest voices in cinema history as Orson Welles and Mark Cousin and that was brilliant you know, just hearing them. But I think as with a lot of documentaries like this, all that happened while I was watching it was I wanted to watch all the films they were showing me clips mm -hmm. from, either again or for the first time. You know, it takes this conceit that, you know, it's got all these drawings of Wells and how do they illuminate his work? And I personally didn't feel as though they did illuminate the work that mm -hmm. much. He could have just said, I'm making a documentary about Orson Wells. Mm -hmm. And whenever he veered off into talking about the films, it was at its best. But a large portion of it was him meeting up with Orson Welles' daughter and looking at these pictures yeah. and saying, this reminds me of blah. He seems to you know, find structure almost as the film goes on, mm. this sense of uh, reassessing who Orson Welles is as a cultural figure through these paintings and or, or sketches and comes up with these archetypes like a knight or a king or a jester. We see Orson Welles as the great filmmaker, the great, you know, in later years, you know, uh, Falstaffian large figure with massive cigar, but he, these are the, the sort of the political aspects of him. These are the romantic aspects of him, the cynical aspects, the humanist aspects. And that's quite exciting for me really just because we very rarely have documentaries or even criticism that will do that work a lifetime of appreciation of the films so he knows those films at the back of his hand he knows the imagery so when he goes and sees a painting elsewhere somewhere on the other side of the world he'll say oh that looks like the ceiling in this scene of Citizen Kane so there's some illumination there but I know what you mean it's, it's always hard with these documentaries isn't it not to just see a clip of Touch of Evil and then say can't we just run Touch of Evil now instead yeah it's just so structurally it's so shambling as well mm. and that does partly add to the charm of it but yeah. it does feel like he's 
making it up as he goes along a little bit. And if, for me, this film doesn't really settle into a, a comfortable rhythm. Mm. But he picks up on certain themes and ideas and then just abandons them when he, he sort of sees something else to jump on. And mm. you mentioned the scenes with his uh, Orsomise's daughter. I thought she was given fairly short shrift, actually. Could yeah. have probably had a bit more focus on her, either as an interview subject or just having her maybe narrate or kind of take the reins a little bit. Presumably she has some insight into her father's work and she actually has all these drawings of his. But yeah, you don't really get to spend much time with her, which again found quite frustrating. I think it's part and parcel of this shambling nature of how these films are put together. He just goes out into the world with his, with his the access of being a critic and former festival programmer that he has, uh, but then also a small camera. He goes mm. and shoots random stuff and. Put, then just puts it together almost on the fly. And that's what's quite exciting and, and interesting about these films, but it, it's, it's hard to judge this on the same level as, I don't know, the Vietnam War mm. the, the, you know, the, the, or the Frederick Wiseman films that yeah, are very I mean, properly structured and put together. Yeah, they're trying to do very different things, mm. right? But, yeah, I know what you mean. I think this... If you've seen Cousins' work in the past and, and you've not been particularly thrilled by it, then mm. I don't think this will convert you necessarily. Yeah. Equally, if you are a big fan of Orson Welles and you know quite a bit about him, I'm not sure it will illuminate much more that you maybe don't already know. No, um, I did think, though, that it had clips in it that I hadn't seen before, not from his films, that were magnificent. Mm. I mean, he's mm. got a clip of Welles talking about this brutal police officer who blinded a man mm. and the police officer got off, plus a change, and it just seemed incredible to me that you know in an era of black lives matter and stuff that wells was on tv basically doing this such mm. a long time ago mm. and you know there's a clip of him applying makeup and playing full stuff on the dean martin show mm-hmm. and that's just incredible to me i'm sure you know if some if i asked someone for the best youtube clips of orson wells you'd get to see these things but i hadn't seen them before and i thought they were incredible that did stand out to me and there's almost a full film to be made just about orson mm. wells the public figure and just the way. man as well yeah. and Actually, one thing that surprised me was Mark Cousins being from Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. So much of Wells's story is is interwoven with Ireland as a country, and I, I wonder why he didn't focus on that a bit more. Mm-hmm. Actually, we'll see later in F for Fake. There's a really good section in that where exactly, Orson yeah. Wells goes into more depth there. Well, um, it's, we can't really spoil a documentary, but there is a whole a, a sequence towards the end of the film where, after these letters that Mark Cousins has been writing, Orson Wells writes back to Mark Cousins in a fictional letter with a not particularly good Austin Wells impersonator mm-hmm. uh, coming on the soundtrack and he actually does say give my love to Ireland mm-hmm. or how's Ireland doing how do we feel about that is that part of the the charm of Mark Cousins film where he might have the audacity to do that the earnestness the, I mean, the passion sounds, it sounds very pretentious when you when you explain it <laughs> but actually it doesn't come across in that way mm-hmm. um, it just comes across as there's parts of this film that I think are actually quite amateurish and I think mm. intentionally so and possibly to the detriment of what Cousins is actually trying to achieve. I think he's so wedded to and so actually in love with his own style and mode of filmmaking that if he maybe stepped away from that slightly no, I'm not saying he should do something more conventional mm. but just um, untether himself from this idea that he has of okay this is how I'm going to structure it and I'm going to just do it as I go along essentially. It just feels too shambling and too um, the, the, meandering. That, that amateurish quality there seems to be one of these moments in every Cousins film that I've seen but in this one it happens about 20 minutes in where it's, it's all the footage of Times Square in the modern day that he's shooting and he shoots a subway grill and he actually just then says on the on the track your reputation was gathering steam as yeah. steam is rising <laughs> it's like come on but whether it needs someone else because I, I presume he just edits and, and I mean this is like completely him he shoots it all himself he does have an editor I think right and, but and whether it's advisors. just he needs someone closer to him to say actually 
you need to rein this in a bit more or could you explore that a bit more? You don't get a sense that he's working to like a deadline or, or even to like a budget particularly. So I like that freewheeling nature of it mm-hmm. um, and the and the you know the freedom he has to go out and do this. Yeah. But. I actually hated that reply moment. I, yeah. I really loathed it. I just think towards the end of a love letter, you can't give someone a right of reply which you've written for them and they're dead. It just made me really uncomfortable Mm -hmm. and I thought it was staggering actually that he'd done it and that he had the audacity to do it. Um, (laughs) But I don't think he's lacking in confidence. Fair play. I mean, this is speculation of course, but what do you think Wells would have made of it? Because I couldn't help thinking that throughout. I actually think Mm. he'd have liked it. He may not have liked that moment, but I think what Cousins sort of his major thesis seems to be that this was a man of enormous appetites for Mm. everything and that you know when he had a friendship he loved that person you know almost romantically even if it wasn't and he he fell in love with women constantly and he loved food and he loved making films and he loved the theatre and he loved radio and I think that is what comes across more than anything which is why I actually thought it could have been a slightly more conventional documentary because I actually thought it was at its best when it was exploring that and I think the reason that the footage was so good is that I've rarely seen an artist so good at talking about their own work. Mm. You know, you say, oh, I'll separate the art from the artist. But Wells, he really, really, like it, almost every interview illuminated something. There was a moment where he was talking about the trial and he changed the ending and he was asked in an interview why he had changed the ending. And he said that, um, you know, we're all Jewish after the Holocaust. Yeah, it's incredible. And that moment, was a mind-blowing moment, yeah. I just basically would just love to have seen lots of interview clips of Well, him. just to see that conviction, because we do see Austin Wells I don't know, probably the most watched YouTube clip for Austin Wells for me is uh, the very drunk wine commercial that he did in, in the States where he just can't even get the words out and he's just ranting and raving or we watch F for Fake where he's this sort of jester-like figure, we watch him as the great man of cinema in the films, you know, the third man is Harry Lyman and so on. To see him have that intense political conviction and insight into his own work is really illuminating and hopefully we can see more of that in the future really. Uh, but it was interesting I guess for me the what's to take away from this uh, the way it comes together at the end is Mark Cousins makes this point that he was a you know, Orson Welles was a man of extreme appetites but also quite a great forward thinker he was ahead of his time in many of these themes he was assessing the techniques he was using and it ends on this question mark of what would he have done with the internet, what would he have done with mm. digital cameras, what would he have done with all of what was available to us now and it's not a bad thought experiment to end on really. But let's end on something we have to end on scores Adam do you want to go first for this one yeah sure I think anticipation probably a four actually Mm -hmm. I I like a lot of Cousins earlier work and and Orson Welles is just such an interesting and I think still remains a fairly enigmatic genius within the canon so yeah I'd say quite high anticipation but maybe a three at the time and a a two in retrospect I just don't think it really adds much to the the legacy or the story Mm. Darren I think I'd probably go threes across the board. I like Wells a lot, but I'm not a fanatic. I was slightly kind of wary of the fact that it was going to be an unconventional documentary. You know, obviously this was done with David Lynch a couple of years ago, Mm. where, you know, it was not told through his cinema work. It was told a different way. And, yeah, it sort of was exactly as I expected it to be. And in hindsight, it would still be a three. Mm. I think for me, this is a three, two, three. I've seen quite a few Cousins films. You usually see them on the festival circuit. And I always turn up because he's so different and unique. But this one was a bit of a slog. It's an hour 50, which Mm. is a good 20 minutes long 
stronger than some of his other films. And I, I was really feeling that. But I, in, in the days since, it, it stuck with me, little moments and little themes and imagery and clips in particular stuck with me. So three, two, three. I think it's going to be very interesting to see his next project, exactly. which is in uh, the Venice Film Festival, which you and I are, are going to be at, yeah, Michael, yeah. Uh, which is the, the story of women in film, which mm. someone um, pointed out is in the main competition, I think, runs at four hours. I th- maybe even longer. Maybe even there's, longer. There's more yeah. hours of a documentary about women in film directed by Mark Cousins in the competition at Venice than there are actual films directed by women. Yeah. Um, the, I think the only film in competition is the Jennifer Kent right. uh, new, new film, The Nightingale. So, that, I mean, that feels like it's setting it up for uh, a pretty nasty fall. But anyway, co-produced but... by Tilda Swinton, who is one of his regular collaborators. Who knows? Let's see. Open mind, open eyes. But yeah, it'd be interesting to check that out. And also, there's a, an uncompleted or recently completed uh, Awesome Wells yeah. film coming to Netflix later this year called and The Other Side of the Wind. And a more conventional documentary, isn't yes, it, coming to they're, Netflix they're as well? both at the same time, aren't they? Yeah. Um, so that would be interesting see, to see. I'm sure we'll cover those on, on here. More awesome to come. And more awesome to come on this podcast as well, because up next is Film Club, and we're talking about his film F for Fake. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Our works in stone, in paint, in print are spared, some of them for a few decades or a millennium or two, but everything must finally fall in war or wear away into the ultimate and universal ash. The triumphs and the frauds, the treasures and the fakes, a fact of life. We're going to die. Be of good heart. Cry the dead artists out of the living past. Our songs will all be silenced. But what of it? Go on singing. Maybe a man's name doesn't matter all that much. A nice bit of existential dread there. 
from Orson Welles and F for Fake. This film was released in 1973, his final completed work before he died, and it's a sort of documentary about forgery in the art and publishing worlds that soon becomes an exploration of the very notions of authenticity and creativity, presented by Orson Welles, whose acts as a sort of ringmaster, corralling together footage and themes and stray thoughts into what people say is a pioneering film essay. I'd seen this years ago, and it was such a great experience rewatching it again. Darren, was this your first time with it? Or this was the first it time I'd ever seen it, yeah. It is quite unlike anything I've ever seen. Uh, as you say, he plays this sort of Prospero figure overseeing what's happening. It's kind of remarkable that it was his last film because he didn't die until 12 years after this. Mm. But that, I suppose, tells you something about his standing at the time. Mm. It's almost impossible to categorise. I mean, it, it's sort of so freewheeling. You know, if, if the Cousins film about him was freewheeling, this is really next level. You know, it is about the nature of fraud and fake and deception and opens with him performing a magic trick in a sort of railway station and goes from there to talk about all kinds of different examples of those things. Mm. It's bizarrely Brechtian you know he is speaking right into the camera nearly the whole way through and it's flipping around between all kinds of different tales that as you say he's quarrelling together mm. I mean I'm not sure this is probably blasphemous I'm not sure it entirely hangs together as a film mm -hmm. it's a completely unique viewing experience but I don't know it is an essay it is a film essay you know it's been called like one of the first film essays and I think that's about right I wouldn't go into it expecting Touch of Evil well that's the interesting thing after Touch of Evil really it's that's when he started his European phase and he didn't really ever have a studio backing him and full budgets and he would be cobbling films together with you know uh, sometimes uh, a, a crews of low repute in Spain porn uh, producers and shooters and, and editors and so on just grabbing people together. And this is almost, I think, out of the films I've seen, the best version of that, where some of the documentary footage you see was shot by another director and he's using it himself. One of the stories, which is about uh, Elmer de Horry, who is this um, art forger based in, uh, in Ibiza. And then we also have Clifford Irving, who wrote a book on de Horry, but then also performed the, uh, the, the hoax of the century, which was... Um, the fake autobiography of Howard Hughes. Adam, have we had any listener comments for this one? Yeah, we had a couple, but I, I like this one from Gerard Corvin. It just describes F for Fake is the Citizen Kane of Orson Welles films, which actually quite clearly <laughs> sums yeah. up the film. Um, yeah, I first saw this, I think, when I was in college and didn't really know what to make of it. I hadn't mm. seen anything like it at the time. And actually was convinced that the two sort of main characters of Elmer and Clifford were fictional. Mm -hmm. um, didn't know their backstory, didn't know the story of them. And just, yeah, assume that they were actors telling this story. And if you weren't told any, any differently, I think it's quite easy to believe that. It just seems like such a farcical story anyway. And that clip that we played at the start of this section does make it sound quite dour and dark and mysterious but it's actually very playful and jovial really and he's playful. Wells is very mischievous throughout yeah. um, the, the amount of fun he's clearly having with the editing um, and he's in a lot of the scenes with Elmer and Clifford they're mm. all just kind of hanging out together and um, yeah, you have so much footage of Orson chomping down a cigar on a cigar, laughing or telling an anecdote. Or... And he's doing it in the moment, so he's narrating the story as it's sort of happening. You know, <laughs> it's not like a voiceover that's been dropped in later, and suddenly they'll be around a dinner table, and he'll just look to the camera and. And there's all these wonderful asides and um, there's actually a, 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 one of my favourite moments is when he does start going into more personal territory and mm. discussing his his story of how he came to be 
who he is and, and he talks about his early visits to Ireland and early work in the theatre mm. and, and radio and especially the War of the Worlds, yeah. very famous uh, radio adaptation. Yeah, and how he'd got into the theatre by sort of claiming he was a big actor already even though he yeah. wasn't and it was, you know, how much deception had played a part in his career. I mean, Irving at one point is interviewed with a monkey nibbling at his ear <laughs> and it's sort of like, of course, you, you don't think this is for real because it, it is really stranger than fiction and they, they are bizarre characters and almost everyone involved. Mm-hmm. And I think he does, well, does conduct more straightforward interviews with everyone but the way he then chops and changes those around you're not sure who's responding to what they've heard from somewhere else and, and what clip so yeah exactly and and it's such an exciting and energizing film to watch because it's still so radical in its just basic cinematic tenets in a way in its language where you're cutting back and forth between various levels of archive footage responding to one another and then a frame uh, shot of wells in an editing suite stopping and pausing the the reel at one point the reel comes off the tape and he's just goes oh no it's oh, all I'll just to... mend this bit of film and yeah, yeah uh, so it just has this great free flowing energy to it and also the way it plays with gaze, the way that it constructs these. There's a sequence where Elmer Dehore and Clifford Irving are seemingly in debate over whether Dehore ever signed the fakes he created. And they're two separate bits of footage, but because they're laid side by side in the film, it feels like there's constructed dialogue there. And there's also a, a famous Coda sequence featuring Oya Koda, who was Wells's partner later in life and inherited his estate or co-inherited his estate. And he constructs this this sequence of her walking down the street with lots of shots of men ogling her, just creating meaning through shots and language. Mm. And, you know, this is 1973 and he's observing the male gaze there on film, which is quite, you know, radical and ahead of its time. Yeah, he's sending it up as well in a very clever way, very playful way. Mm -hmm. It's such an unusual film, but there's a really interesting personal narrative that he brings to it. And, And we mentioned... The, the way he reveals that deception and, and fraudery really like played into his trajectory as a filmmaker and as a performer. Um, and you can see he's never lost that. He's mm. still got this little glint in his eye and, and it just his appearance as well. He's got this black hat and this black, almost like cloak-like yeah. overcoat and he's just such an amazing presence throughout the movie. He's such a larger-than-life figure in every sense. Yeah. Um, and he's the perfect kind of ringmaster for what happens here. It actually reminded me quite a lot of one of my favourite TV shows of recent years is Nathan For You. And on that programme, you can't quite tell what's real and what's fake, and a lot's been written about, are these people actors or aren't they actors? And it was amazing to see a film made, you know, 45 years ago where it's exactly the same things are at play. Nathan For You plays it more for laughs, but this is still kind of a freewheeling, remarkable experiment. Mm. It really is such a remarkable film and I remember when I was a teenager having to get it, I had to import it from the States but luckily it's more available now and a lot of Orson Welles films, his later films are available now. Should we offer some recommendations for listeners to follow on if they've watched F for Fake? Adam, do you have one? I think my favourite of his is probably Lady from Shanghai. Really? Yeah, and the one I probably watched much later than a lot of his other ones Certainly things like Citizen Kane, obviously, that's kind of high up the list when you're first getting into in, into more kind of classic territory. But yeah, that would be my, my tip. Yeah, Darren? I think the two that are currently on Netflix in this country, I checked the other day, are The Stranger, which was his fourth film. Mm. And he was sort of trying to prove a point that he could make a film on budget and mm. on time. And it, it is a kind of 
a classic film noir. It's not experimental or difficult. It's a very accessible film, is superb, and Touch of Evil is also on there. It's not the 1998 version, which is right. better, mm-hmm. but Touch of Evil is probably my favourite and still worth a look in the whatever it is, 90-minute version. Mm-hmm. You know, our professor only having seen probably half of his films and they're the obvious ones. What's exciting now is um, I uh, registered for Filmstruck to, to watch F for Fake and they also have Mr. Arkadin on there, yeah. which I've, that's I've never really seen. That's really good. Uh, that's one that wasn't available when I was having my Wells phase as a teenager. <laughs> so I think I'm going to dig into that next. The clips we saw in The Eyes of Orson Welles made that one look like an interesting European spy romp. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So that was F for Fake for Film Club. What's happening next week, Adam? What's, what homework do we have? Well, um, going on to another great American filmmaker in Spike Lee. So he's, he's back with Black Klansman, which we saw in Cannes and mm-hmm. is, is finally coming out over here. And that's followed by The Children Act, which I think you've seen already. I saw already Richard Eyre uh, adapting Ian McEwan. And then for the film club, we're going to look at Spike Lee's She's Got to Have It. The film, not the TV series. The film. So the mm-hmm. film from, I believe, 90 or 91, possibly. Maybe a little earlier. Maybe that, a little yeah. earlier. So, But it's it's pretty widely available. Mm-hmm. And it was, was recently remade, as by all accounts, a fairly decent um, Netflix series. But mm-hmm. yeah, we're going to look back at the original film. He's, he's an interesting director, V, that he always gets... I think it's criticised for not um, writing very good female characters. But this is proof that he can and does do that. There goes that home wrecker. I know she's trying to steal my man. No good sleeping around, stank, bitch. You know, I don't blame Greer, I blame her. She knew he was mine. If Nola had loved Jamie, it would have been different. Love? Oh, come on, she just f***s them and leaves them. It's sisters like her who are corrupting our men. The few good ones left. I'll be damned if she takes Mars from me. I'm four months pregnant. Mm Mm-hmm. The decent black men are all taken. The rest are in prison or homos. I've gone to bed alone too much already. I'm from Brownsville. We don't play that shit. So what should we do to her? Well, we'll reassess She's Gotta Have It next week in Film Club. But next week's episode in general will be a bit different, won't it, Adam? Yeah, so we are actually um, leaving our cosy studio here mm-hmm. to take over a, a part of Somerset House. We're basically having residency at a print exhibition that they've got on there. Um, and we'll be there recording live. And you can buy tickets if you head to the Somerset House website. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll be there Wednesday evening. And uh, Film 4's Somerset House yeah. uh, summer screen is also happening at the same time. So. Yeah, that's still running all week and into next week as well. And tonight's Carol, uh, Wednesday evening. We also have, uh, what do we have coming up? Sleeping Beauty, a double bill of Total Recall, Nightmare on Elm Street on Saturday night, uh, Bell and the Bets and Bride of Frankenstein on Friday night next week. We have Selma and and then American Animals for the closing evening. Yeah, so I think American Animals is, is the same night as our podcast. So you can come along, listen to us, and then go and see that if you like. Perfect. So details on the Somerset House website. Yeah, and we'll probably send out a few more tweets about it. Exactly. So check Twitter at LWLies, or if you want to email us, there's truthandmovies at tcolondon.com. There's also the comments section on the LWLies.com website. Uh, that's LWLies.com slash podcast. I suppose it just leaves me to say thank you, Adam, for joining me today. Thanks. And thanks, Darren. Thanks for timer. Cheers. Hope we come back soon. I've been Michael Eder, and this, as always, has been a Seven Digital production. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.